Welcome to the Mytho Ladies podcast, a podcast about women in mythology and folklore all around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Zoe. And I'm Lizzie. So, Zoe, who are we talking about today? All right, today we are going to talk about Inanna slash Ishtar. Yeah, so basically uh, she's a Mesopotamian goddess and she was worshipped by the Sumerians as Inanna. And then later, the Akkadians, uh, the Babylonians, and the Assyrians worshipped her as Ishtar. But we're going to just be calling her Inanna for now. Um, She's associated with love, beauty, sex, war, justice, and political power. Oh, I Um, love that mix. mm Mm-hmm. It is a very fun mix, and I'm going to talk a bit about how those... I think it'll be clear how those relate, which I think is fun. Um, And she was especially loved by the Assyrians. She was the highest-ranking god in their land. Um, and she was actually worshipped for a really long time until around, um, 5th to 6th centuries common era, and then her worship declined due to the spread of Christianity in the area. However, uh, small cults worshipping her survived in Assyrian communities as late as the 18th century. Ooh. So one thing that's really interesting about her is that she's associated with the planet Venus, and so one of her symbols is an eight-pointed star, which is believed to represent the planet Venus, and a lot of people have studied um, her the stories that I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to talk about this later as well. Um, but her movements and the stories, people believe, follow the movements of the planet Venus. And also the discontinuous movement of Venus, people believe, represent the dual nature of Inanna. So uh, just some brief, um, uh, very like layman's astro- astronomy, because I don't know a lot about it, but... Venus appears in this, can be seen in the sky around sunset and sunrise. And then throughout the day, you can't see it because the sun's light is so bright. Um, and since you don't see its path, like you can see other uh, heavenly bodies, a lot of ancient civilizations believed that Venus was actually two separate heavenly bodies because you would see it in the east and then you see it in the west and you didn't see how it got there. The Sumerians actually understood that it was the same a heavenly body, but they recognize that, like, its ability to sort of, like, just disappear, seemingly disappear and reappear in different places without being able to see its movements sort of created a duality around it that is sort of represented in Inanna's character. Okay. Yeah. So, um, a big thing, she's the goddess of warfare and sexuality, and so a lot of her stories are basically her moving from conquest to conquest, either battle conquest or sexual conquest. And basically, she's always looking for more power. And another interesting thing about her is that she's distinctively not the goddess of marriage, and she's not associated with motherhood. Interesting. mm -hmm. Even though she's associated heavily with sexuality, she is not associated with... She's just associated with sexuality. She's not associated with other things that come with sexuality. And she is married. She has a husband named Demuzid, and he's the god of shepherds. But her loyalty to him wavers, as we will see. So a brief overview of the culture that we're going to be talking about. Uh, Sumer is the earliest known civilization. It's in modern, it was located in modern-day southern Iraq. 
in the valleys of Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So the Sumerian civilization had a symbiotic relationship with the Akkadians, and there was widespread bilingualism and some lexical borrowing, which I thought you might oh, find which interesting. I do. <laughs> which languages? Um, I think basically Sumer and Akkad. Oh, okay. I don't That's amazing. know. But yeah. Um, so it was an agricultural civilization, and both the agricultural... Uh, aspect of the civilization and the society in general were very much affected by frequent and unpredictable violent floodings of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So the life ha their life had great pessimism and uncertainty. And it was also a male-dominated society, and it was stratified by social classes. And this is sort of demonstrated by this uh, Sumerian proverb, which describes the ideal marriage as the woman has born eight children, but still excited to have sex. Wow. Yeah. So, um, the culture of worship around Inanna, her worship was limited until the takeover of Sargon of Ak Akkad in around 2334 B BCE. Um, and that's because, basically, the legends about his rise to power involve her directly. Basically, um, he had favor with the goddess, and he had dreams about Inanna drowning his predecessor, King Ur-Zababa. And so King Urzababa found out about this and tried multiple times to kill Sargon, but he failed every time due to intervention from Inanna, who foiled all his plots. Uh, the records of his assumption to the throne are lost, but I feel like we can assume that when he became king, he dedicated a lot of worship to Inanna in return for her help. So an interesting thing about Inanna, something I thought interesting, I feel like she's kind of the patron god of trans lesbians. And this is because, according to Wikipedia, a lot of people involved in her worship were gender nonconforming. Wikipedia says that a lot of the people who worshipped her were quote-unquote men who adopted female names, spoke from a woman's perspective, and dressed in women's clothes. However, knowing what we know about with modern ideas about gender and sex, I feel like we could assume that these were not actually men, but were in fact trans women. And also, they had quote-unquote homosexual proclivities. So I believe that a lot of people involved in her worship were trans lesbians, which I think is very cool. That's amazing. So now we can move on to the stories. I just want to uh, put a brief disclaimer. I've talked about this with Lizzie personally, and I think that pronunciations are really important. And I try really hard to pronounce the names and words in my stories correctly. However... I had some real trouble finding pronunciations for a lot of the things in these stories. So a lot of them I kind of had to try and wing it. So if that is, if I mess it up, I'm really sorry. I tried really hard to find pronunciations and some of them I just could not find or I was just really uncertain of whether or not these were actually correct, correct pronunciations. Um, but hopefully... The, uh, so I'm really sorry if I messed up. It's ancient languages. Yeah, right? it's ancient languages. So I found like a few of the more um, popular gods I found um, very easily, but a lot of like the uh, some of the words I just couldn't find. So I just had to kind of guess based on the other words. Okay. Yeah. So Inanna is actually featured in more Sumer god myths than any other god, um, which is cool. And she has mainly two types of myths. They're conquest myths, which involve her going into other gods' domains and basically taking over. And justice myths, in which she feels like she's been offended in some way, and she acts in revenge to fix that. 
So the first story she's mentioned in is the creation story, which is called Enki and the World Order. So in this story, at the end of the story, Inanna comes to the creator god Enki at the end of the story and complains that all the gods have domains except for her. But he sort of chides her and like tells her he hasn't disparaged her, and he gives her her functions. He says she's the goddess of war, womanhood, fertility, and creation. And that's how we sort of get the functions and domain of Inanna as a goddess. The second story is about Inanna and Utu, who is Inanna's brother. And it's basically okay. a hymn about how Inanna becomes the goddess of sex. Hmm. So basically, Inanna realizes she has no knowledge of sex and she asks her brother Utu to take her to the underworld which is called Kur and that's going to be important later and basically show her the fruit that would give her the knowledge of sex and she eats the fruit and gains that knowledge now does this sound familiar yes (laughs) yes (laughs) so a lot of people believe this is a forerunner to the story of Adam and Eve from Genesis that's really interesting because well I don't know that much about Christian mythology but It's more, like, general, not just about sex, but about, like, the knowledge of the world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. um, It's, but, uh, like, it does, um, it's sort of, like, general knowledge, uh, but it's, like, a lot of it is heavily associated with sex, because, like, one of the first things that they realize after they eat the fruit is that, like, they're naked and they have to clothe themselves, so they get, like, shame about their sexuality for the first time. Ah, Okay. Um, and, like, if you read into, like, Theology of the Body, which, like, whatever, um, I am not a big fan of because it's very conservative, um, but a lot of it is, like, associated with, like, original sin ruined our relationship with sexuality in regards to ourselves and other people, so. Okay. But, but this is actually a lot- Inanna, it was the opposite, right? Yeah, it, like, basically gave her the knowledge of sex. It's actually quite a positive story, I believe. Okay. It gives her, like, a lot of her, like, powers, I think which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So then the next story is called Inanna Prefers the Farmer, and it's a playful poem. And basically, her brother Utu tells Inanna through playful conversation that it's her time to marry. And she's courted by two gods. Um, First, it's Enkindu, a farmer, and Dmuzid, a shepherd. And originally, Inanna prefers Enkindu, And her arguments involve, to some extent, issues of patriarchal oppression. So one of the things she says is, he shall not make me carry his garments of new wool. Which I think, personally, um, sounds like she's not as interested in Demuzid because she's worried he's going to, like, force her to work all the time and into the duties and confines of being a housewife. Yeah. Um, But Utu and Demuzid gradually persuade her uh, to choose Demuzid, um, and they say that everything a farmer can give, a shepherd can give something better. And so she does choose Demuzid, but, um, the shepherd and the farmer reconcile through mutual gift-giving. Now, does this story sound familiar? Honestly, not really. That's okay, this one is a bit, um, more broad, but people can have compared the story to the story of Cain and Abel, and that's because uh, Cain and Abel involve a shepherd, uh, Cain, uh, sorry, Abel, and a farmer, who's Cain, presenting gifts in order to win the favor of a god. And ultimately, in both stories, the god prefers the gifts of the shepherd. 
However, this story also ends a lot more happily because the shepherd and farmer reconcile, while, whereas in the biblical story of Cain and Abel, Cain ends up killing Abel out of jealousy. Okay. So I also think that's really interesting um, that these stories relate, but again, the story seems to have a lot more positive spin than this biblical story that is more commonly known. So then we have Inanna and Enki, and this is a conquest myth. And basically what she does is she steals the maze from Enki. So maze is plural, it's spelled M-E, and singular form is May. And it's a sacred power slash property of gods that allow humans to exist. So they can be abstract, they can be truth, victory, or counsel, or skills like weaving or writing, or social constructs like law, offices, kingship, and sex work. So in order to do this, she travels from her sacred city of Uruk to Enki's city, Eridu, and visits his temple, Iabza. And at the temple, she initiates a drinking competition with Enki, and once he's drunk enough, she convinces him to let her have the maze. So once he awakens and he's sober, he's very angry to learn what has happened and sends many ferocious monsters after Inanna. But all of these are fought off by Inanna's attendant, Ninchubar, and they are able to successfully take the maze back to Uruk. So this could possibly represent the transfer of power from the city of Eridu to Uruk um, in the Sumerian Empire, or not empire, civilization, and the maturation of Inanna into the Queen of Heaven as a, like, a very powerful goddess. So the next uh, myth is called Inanna Takes Command of Heaven, and it's a very fragmented conquest myth, but it, and it's, so it's pretty short. But basically, she learns that the Uruk temple, Iana, is not under her and her brother's domain, and so she decides to take it for herself. She travels across the swamps to the temple, where she meets her father, who's the patron of the temple, and the sky god, On. And he's shocked by her arrogance, but he concedes the power to her. And... This could possibly represent how the priests of An lost power compared to the priests of Inanna as her cult grew in influence. The next myth is called Inanna and Ibe, and this is a justice myth. And basically what happens is Inanna finds the mountain Ibe and becomes angry with it. She believes its great beauty and might are an insult to her, personally. And she asks her father On for permission to destroy it, and he's like, no but she does it anyway and destroys the mountain. All right. This is the last myth before we get into like the really juicy and famous Inanna myth. Okay. Um, and it's called Inanna and Shukala Tuda. And so this one, I will say there is a sexual assault trigger warning. Okay. It is a justice myth. And uh, the character Shukala Tuda is basically a bad farmer and he has only one surviving poplar tree. So he's like really bad and struggling. And Inanna comes across his farm, sees the tree, ends up falling asleep under it. And Shikala Tuda comes across her and rapes her. Does he think she's a human? It's unclear. I guess he must, because I feel like it's so stupid that he did that. Because if Inanna, the most powerful goddess ever, falls asleep under your tree and you have, like, a struggling farm, you'd want to ask her for favor? And but not, it's, And not, yeah. like, do the worst thing ever to her. So, enraged, Inanna becomes determined to find him, and in the meantime, releases her wrath upon the world in form of plagues. 
which is also interesting because there's the connection to Exodus there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but Shikalatuda hides among the crowds of Uruk, and Inanna can't find him. So she goes to the god Enki and threatens to leave her temple if he doesn't help her find him. So Enki agrees and gives her the ability to, quote, fly across the sky like a rainbow. So while she's flying across the sky, she sees him, goes down to him, and despite his pleas for mercy, she kills him. And this is believed to be an astral myth, so Inanna is following the movements of the planet Venus as she flies across the sky. And um, also the poem begins by praising Inanna as the planet Venus, so there's that clear connection to the planet Venus and astronomy mm-hmm. in this story. Okay. So the most famous story regarding Inanna is her descent into the underworld. And uh, this is another story that uh, follows the path of the planet Venus because it descends below the horizon in the west and rises again in the east. And so in a similar way, she descends into the underworld and, spoiler alert, she comes out again. So basically, Inanna, in true Inanna fashion, wants to take control of the underworld. She always wants more power. Mm-hmm. And so she dresses for the occasion. Um, she wears a turban, which is they call it in the text, headgear for the open country, a wig, a lapis lazuli necklace, egg-shaped beads on her breasts, a Paula dress of ladyship, as they call it, a mascara called Let a Man Come, a pectoral called Come Man Come, a golden ring, a lapis lazuli measuring rod, and a measuring line. A measuring see, line. What's the significance of these things? So each of these items represent a may, if you remember those, that oh, she stole okay. from Enki. So they're all symbols of power. And so before descending, she does one more thing of preparation. She tells her a- attendant, Ninshubar, that if she doesn't return after three days to lament for her in the upper world, um, to lacerate her eyes and nose, and one version her, also her ears, her buttocks, to dress like a pauper, and to beat the drum in Inanna's sanctuary in mourning. And then she needs to go to three separate gods, one at a time, Enlil, Nana, and Enki, and appeal to them not to abandon her in the underworld for dead. So if one of them refuses, she's just going to go to the other one until one of them agrees to help her. So, with all those preparations made, Inanna goes to the door of the underworld and bangs aggressively on it. And then, when she's questioned by the doorman, she says she's there for the funerates of Gugalana, who is the husband of her elder sister, Eresh Kigal, who is the lady of the underworld. So the doorman leaves and goes to tell Eresh Kigal about this, and also about the seven garments and symbols she is wearing. Eresh Kigal recognizes the symbols as symbols of power and understands what Inanna's doing. And she doesn't believe that Inanna's there for the funeral. She thinks she's up to something. So she instructs the doorman to lock the seven gates of the underworld and open them one at a time. And at each gate, instruct Inanna to remove one article of clothing or a symbol. So they're removed in this order. The turban, which is the headgear for the open country. The lapis lazuli necklace. The twin egg-shaped beads. The pectoral called Come Man Come, the golden ring, the lapis lazuli measuring rod in line, and finally the pallid dress garment of ladyship. And so each time this happens, Inanna asks, what is this? And each time they tell her, it's a divine power of the underworld that has been fulfilled, and not to open her mouth against the rights of the underworld. So basically, she gets like trapped by um, hospitality rights. Mm. 
So when she enters the final gate, she's naked and her clothes are taken away. And she forces Eresh Kigal off her throne and sits on it and claims the underworld as her own. But then the Anuna, who are seven judges of the underworld, they come forward and they judge her with a look of death, speech of anger, and a shout of heavy guilt. And in that moment, she is turned into a corpse and hung on a hook. And so basically, she dies. Oh. So then two days pass, and Ninshubar is following the instructions. She lacerates everywhere, she beats the drum, she dresses like a pauper, and then she starts going to the gods. So she goes first to Enlil as requested, and he does not help. He says, My daughter craved the great heaven, and she craved the great below as well. Inanna craved the great heaven, and she craved the great below as well. The divine powers of the underworld are divine powers which should not be craved, for whoever gets them must remain in the underworld. Who, having got to that place, could expect to come up again? So basically he's saying, she got too power hungry. She got what she deserves. And then she goes to Nana, and gets the same response. But then she goes to the god Enki, and he responds differently. And he says, What has my daughter done? She has me worried. What has Inanna done? She has me worried. What has the mistress of all the lands done? She has me worried. What has the hero jewel of An done? She has me worried. And he agrees to help. So the way he does this is he takes dirt from under his fingernails and creates two sexless figures. And he gives them life-giving plants and water to sprinkle over Inanna's body to revive her. And he gives them further instructions. So they sneak into the underworld, and they find Eresh Kigal lying there in intense pain of childbirth. And she offers them anything they want in payment for ending her pain, and that includes a river of water and a field of grain. But Enki has foreseen this, and per his instructions, they refuse all that wealth and demand only the body of Inanna. So Eresh Kigal agrees, and they give her the life-giving plant and water, and Inanna is revived. So they begin to travel out of the underworld, but before they can leave, the Anuna rise up and declare that no one can leave the underworld unscathed, and so she must provide a substitute in her place. So they allow Inanna to ascend from the underworld, but she's kept captive by a demon guard escort looking for a replacement for her. And so for the first person they come across once Inanna leaves the underworld is her attendant Ninshubar. But Inanna sees that she's followed all her instructions, that she's been grieving properly, and that she's the reason she's out of the underworld, and she's super grateful. So she's like, no, I'm not going to turn her over to you demons. And then a few of her other loyal followers come forward, like her hairdresser at the, at the temple, and another caretaker of hers. And Inanna sees them, and she sees that they've been deep in grief and mourning her death. And she's like, no, I'm not giving you these people to take into the underworld because they've been honoring me properly. But then they come across Dumuzid, her husband. And he is, quote, clothed in a magnificent garment and seated magnificently on a throne. And he hasn't been mourning her. He's been thriving. And therefore, Inanna must condemn him. So she looks at him with the look of death, speaks to him with the speech of anger, and shouts at him with a shout of heavy guilt, in the same way that the Anuna once condemned her. And he gets taken to the underworld. And so there's an epilogue that was discovered a lot later called The Return of Dumuzid, 
And basically, Dumuzi's sister, Gisti Nana, is mourning the absence of her brother, alongside Inana, who apparently has begun to regret her choice. And while this is happening, this fly appears and offers to show them where Dumuzid is resting in the underworld. And so after finding her husband, Inanna decrees that Dumuzid will spend half the year with Eresh Kigal, and then his sister will take her his place for the other half. Interesting. And does that sound familiar? Sounds like Persephone. Yes, so this makes the seasons. Ah. All right, so... I have some ideas about interpreting the story, but first I want to hear your thoughts. I think the separation of the underworld and the living world is so interesting, because mm. Anana is the like the queen of everything, basically, right? Yeah. But she can't even access the underworld. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. Also, like when they um, Ninshubar goes, Ninshubar goes to the gods, and they're like, and she's like, "Please help my goddess." And they're like, no, she went too far this time. Like, she can have all the power on land, but, like, the underworld, you don't go there. Was there a god of the underworld? So, um, according to the story, Eresh Kigal was, like, the underworld lady. Um, Did she, like, take the souls of people, or...? It's unclear. I know that in the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, there's a part where they descend into the underworld. But I don't know, like what the story is exactly like which god takes True. Uh, okay. the souls there i also think it's very interesting that um her husband is the one who takes her place but it's not like a like a loyal like romantic sacrifice it's because he's being a jerk and so she yeah they seem like they have a very loveless marriage like she cheats on him and then he mm-hmm. doesn't mourn her yeah, like, yeah, I I think I had it in my notes at some point, and then, like, uh, it's coded out for Ty, but, like, basically, yeah, she, like, definitely has affairs, because she's the goddess of sexuality, so, like, she's just having a great time, and he's just, like, there. It's interesting that the goddess of sexuality is somebody who's also seen as very power-hungry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really thought the con- like, the comparison of, like, military conquests to sexual conquests and, like, discussing her power- like, Sphere was super interesting, mm-hmm. and how, like, ultimately, like, recognizing that, like, sex is a form of power. Mm. Um, kind of shows you the values of the society. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had some notes, which I also cut out for time, but I can talk about them now. Basically, they were, like, pretty chill about sex. Um, they were, like, they were sort of discouraged premarital sex, but it wasn't, like, a big thing, and they didn't have, like, a concept of virginity. Uh, and they were less like sex is evil than like if you perform certain acts you're impure for rituals so you have to like go through some purification processes but like that was about it interesting that they don't have a concept of virginity because it seemed like with the anana story that Mm. she was upset about being a virgin but yeah maybe like it's sort of i don't know inana like she went she went through that so nobody else yeah exactly yeah that's exactly what i was thinking some of my thoughts, um, I felt like it demonstrated the dark side of Inanna's powers and her union with them. So, um, Inanna's the goddess of sexuality, but she's also the goddess of war. So she's sort of the goddess of, like, the process that creates life, but also the process that destroys life, even though she's not the goddess of motherhood. I think it's fun when women are the war goddesses, because mm-hmm. I feel, cause the warriors are usually men, so I mm-hmm. think it's a really fun thing. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so you can't have life without death, and then there's necessary for there to be a cycle. And then it's also tied in with the cycle of the seasons and how the earth has to die and be reborn again in order for the crops to continue to flourish and be healthy. Oh, that's nice. So, um, yeah, she's the goddess of fertility um, and was, like, worship as, like, also regarding the fertility of crops. Like, her symbol was um, the door to a storehouse, like her cuneiform ideogram. So, um, she was definitely that's regarded nice. yeah, as, like... Um, also regarding the fertility of crops as well as, like, the fertility of people. It's a circle of life. Yeah. So sh- I think nice. It, yeah. It's very interesting that she's also regarded, like, the seasons, which is, like, sort of the main thing that governs uh, agriculture. Mm-hmm. She was very, very important. Yeah. I think... She, and I think it's really interesting that she was, like, the goddess for mm-hmm. sowing like she was the most like even the creator god wasn't as important as her and she even like takes power away from the creator god yeah that's awesome like, i love that like most of the time the creator god is like the god Mm-hmm. he's like but, the king yeah but not this time Mm-hmm. yeah so to be said about how she's always after power but she pretty mm-hmm. much overpowers the creator god yeah and it's also interesting that she's like always after power, but she has a lot of compassion. Like, when she's coming out of the underworld and they're looking for a replacement for her so she doesn't have to be in the underworld forever, she sees her servants, and, like, any of them would willingly take her place, but she's like, no, these people are so loyal to me, they've been so kind to me, they've been mourning me properly, I'm not gonna let you take them. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, which I think is super cool and really nice of her, basically. Definitely and values loyalty because uh, her mm-hmm. husband, he was completely disloyal and he's the one who's punished mm-hmm. eternally. Yeah. And I think that shows, like, the importance. I guess they must have really valued loyalty in, um, in marriages. So, Inanna, since she's such an old goddess, had a ton of influence on future um, religions and goddesses. So one of those is she influenced the Phoenician goddess Astarte, who is the goddess of fertility, sexuality, and war. Okay. And then that later developed into the Greek goddess Aphrodite. Ah. We know so her. this is really interesting. Um, early stories show Aphrodite as very warlike, bearing both aspects of love and war together. And later, An- Athena manifested more of Inanna's warrior traits as Aphrodite became less associated with warriors. Um, but in the beginning, Aphrodite was like both war and sexuality, which I thought was very cool. And Aphrodite is associated with doves, which is another symbol of Inanna. Mm-hmm. And in Greek, they're known as Peristera, which is similar to a Semitic phrase meaning the bird of Ishtar. Oh, cool. Also going back to Athena... Athena's birth out of Zeus's head is considered by some to be similar to Inanna's descent and ascent from the underworld. Then the Georgian goddess Dal is also possibly based on Inanna. So she's the goddess of fertility and war, often depicted nude and associated with jewelry, associated with a morning star, aka Venus, and she had sexual relationships with mortal men. And then the Hindu goddess Durga was also considered to be inspired by... Uh, Inanna. 
They both rode on lions, their warriors associated with sexuality, and also the destruction of the wicked. Yes, because Durga was also very focused on justice. Mm hmm. And also, early Christians in the Middle East syncretized some aspects of the cult of Inanna into their worship of the Virgin Mary. In particular, they compared her mourning of Jesus to Inanna's mourning of Demuzid after his descent into the underworld. And also, I feel like they probably, um, in the act of syncretization, took maybe some of those stories, like, uh, about her eating the fruit that gives her the knowledge of sex and the story of her preferring the shepherd and, like, developed it into those biblical stories as, like, the syncretization process. They sort of, like, took it and adapted it to their own values because we have Mm -hmm. Eve becoming, or, like, she gets the knowledge of evil and sexuality and stuff, but it's, like, a bad thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in the modern day, um, her main influences are found in translations and interpretations of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Also, Simone de Beauvoir and modern feminists find her to be an important figure, as she was worshipped in equal, if not greater, parts as her male counterparts. Mm. So, uh, de Beauvoir argues in the second sex that ancient female deities are marginalized in favor of male deities. So, like, her argument is basically that we hear a lot about all these ancient male deities that were worshipped a bunch, but we don't hear about these female deities that were also worshipped a ton. Is a way to sort of ignore the fact that, like, women were at some points worshipped on the same level, if not greater level, as men. Mm-hmm. And sh- I think... Is somewhat accurate. Um, you know, we hear a lot about Zeus. Then um, there have been various inac- pretty inaccurate pop culture portrayals of her. She's an important goddess in neo-paganism, and it's the inspiration for the descent of the goddess, which is a very important myth in the Gardnerian Wicca. But there's also criticisms of her portrayal um, because people believe that it ignores the more quote-unquote masculine elements of power. Basically, they believe that she is focused primarily on her associations with sex and sexuality and not her associations with war. And also, she's a popular figure in BDSM circles because she's viewed as an early example. She's viewed as an early example of a dominatrix figure. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so that is Inanna. She's very cool. I think she's pretty awesome. And I also find it really interesting when gods die. Yeah. Like, oh, also, um, that was something I was thinking about. So Inanna um, gives uh, Ninshubar three days to wait for her. It's three days f- to start finding the other gods to bring her back. And that reminds me of the fact that Jesus was dead for three days before he resurrected. Oh, see, I didn't make that connection. Mm-hmm. So That's I thought interesting. Th- that was really interesting. And she does get resurrected as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, and like, I just was like, hmm, I thought that was really cool. So is this more like literary type myths or are they more word of mouth passed along type things? So I, they were probably told, um, but all of the myths that I have are from written texts 
There's from the Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature is where I got all the quotes from. Um, and they're translated from various tablets and cuneiforms. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of them were like poems and hymns. So I'm guessing they were also sung and recited as well in her honor um, okay. as part of worship. But I feel like it might have been primarily um, like literature based as opposed to like oral storytelling that was written down. But I think we just can't really know because it was so long ago. Yeah. Yeah, it was very cool to see how many records there were and to just find it online. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know very much about her. I just knew her name, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know much about her either. Um, I re remember reading about her in, like, my world history textbook. And, oh. like, they were like, yeah, the Sumerians, they worship this goddess. Um, I also remember reading that later she was, like, found, like, considered less important compared to her son, who became, like, a more important god, but I didn't really see much about that. And so, like, as okay. a society, became, like, more patriarchal, but... Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But we're gonna focus on the good parts. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for listening to today's episode, and it would be super helpful for us if you would subscribe and leave a review. Yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs> Mytholady's podcast is produced by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. Today's episode was researched and presented by Zoe Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Mytholady's and visit us on our website at mytholady's.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you next week.